RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is the Chantal Baker Show. And today, I don't know how many of you know very much about our company, um, Operation People. And when I say our company, I mean the media group that Jacob, myself and Phil have started. We've been operating for... I don't know if it's been a year. Maybe it's been around a year, maybe just under a year. And it's been really exciting. We focus on high quality video content and we've been starting to do more investigative work, even more so lately and started a new show where Phil and I break down different government documents and different organizations working with our government. And the reason we wanted to do that is because we think a lot of people don't necessarily see these government documents. They won't make OIA's Official Information Act request themselves and actually find out what is going on here in New Zealand. And it's a really amazing skill that Phil has developed over the last year and a half of just knowing exactly where to look and how to hunt for this government information. So today I wanted to introduce you to our wonderful team member, Phil, and I wanted him to explain more about his background, what he does and why he's decided to jump on board with Operation People and what he finds so fascinating and unusual kind of studying these different government organisations. He's ex-Special Forces. He's also been, um, he's also retrained as a microbiologist, which is pretty phenomenal. And he's worked in anti-human trafficking, um, worked undercover in Thailand as well. So he came back from Thailand right when the first kind of lockdown was starting. And then he, we met him at, at one of the events, one of the protests, he was covering it. And so we met him then. And his story is really interesting. So I wanted you guys to hear more about Phil because we're going to be putting out a lot more investigative pieces. So you'll understand kind of the background of Phil and why he's such a great qualified person to be feeding you guys this information. So Phil, welcome to the show. Now, do you want me to give everyone a rundown a bit about you or would you like to do it? Yeah, go for it. No, no, go for it. We'll test your knowledge. <laughs> okay, so I also call Phil a different name. I call you Jason Bourne because you are just this incredible mastermind and skilled person in so many different areas that it freaks me out sometimes. <laughs> you have a memory like no other. So Phil's history, and correct me if I get any of this wrong, but... You are ex-Special Forces, so worked around the world with Special Forces. Once you left Special Forces, you went and retrained as a medical laboratory scientist down in Dunedin. Following that, you went and worked in anti-child human sex trafficking over in Thailand. Before, like, so I trained as a medical laboratory scientist and then practiced as one for almost two years in that role, so... Just about there. He's good. He's good. (laughs) Special Forces scientist, anti-child human trafficker, and then you came back and pretty much self-taught in IT alongside your brother who works in IT. Then you decided to start getting into a little bit of journalism alongside that and started your own um, paper, which was, you know, small and detailed and interesting on the side, which is how we met you at Mm. one of the protests that you were covering. Does that summarize Phil's work life in a very brief bullet yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, briefly. So yeah, eight, eight years in the New Zealand Army. Um, I joined pretty much straight out of school. Um, I sort of started basic training in that. And then um, I actually got a building apprenticeship. So I kind of left briefly. Um, I had a, I had a great boss doing building. Um, and I did about eight months of a building apprenticeship. But it just, you know, I had some of those goals in the military that I wanted to hit. I wanted to get into the NZSAS. And so I actually went back to the army um, to achieve that, and 
Um, so yeah, so I have some building experience in there as well. But yeah, so I, so I did that for eight years. I, I sort of um, joined up as infantry, um, have a background in sort of reconnaissance, um, counterterrorism, um, or domestic counterterrorism, um, and then and then special forces after that. Um, and yeah, and then after that, yeah, the medical laboratory science practice as a scientist for a few years, and then um, did some anti-human trafficking work, and yeah. Pretty much like you said. <laughs> Jason yeah, Bourne. So, um, <laughs> a, lo- a local Jason Bourne, as I said, guys, as I said. <laughs> yeah. So when we met, you actually met Jacob first, I think maybe a month before you and I even ended up speaking in person. What was that kind of first initial conversation like? Like, why did you kind of want to talk with us a wee bit more? Yeah, yeah so, so one of the things um, sort of when I was in the anti-human trafficking field, um, I was helping to build a, an intelligence capability. So intelligence is about um, analyzing trends. So collecting information, um, which is not necessarily intelligence. And intelligence is what you apply to information. So you collect information and then you're going to identify trends within that information. And that becomes intelligence because it tells you something more um, by collecting a whole lot of sort of data points and saying, well, this is the picture that they're painting. Um, and in fact, intelligence picture is something that's a term that is used because you're sort of putting a lot of the pieces of the puzzle together to actually produce the picture. And so I was very interested in, in intelligence and I was building this intelligence capability um, overseas in, in anti-human trafficking. Um, and then and then that's where I started getting into software as well because I realised, well, if you can work out um, how to... Uh, get into a web page, if you can work out how the internet works, then you can actually extract a lot of information that uh, would take you a long time to do it manually if you can just write a bit of code and put it in that uh, web page. So so I was doing that um, to extract information. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really got into this intelligence. I started to develop techniques. I started, started to learn JavaScript, which is the language for, for browsers. Um, and then, and then I came back to New Zealand when sort of COVID hit and, um, you know, I'd been watching trends. I'd become a little bit more aware politically to what was happening around the world. Um, I was very interested in geopolitics around the world. Um, and I started to look at these trends that were happening from sort of an intelligence analyst perspective. And, um, when, sort of COVID came, um, you know, fully supported because of my medical background, fully supported things like flattening the curve um, to reduce the burden on the healthcare system, things like that. Um, But then I could quite, I I could see quite quickly that, um, you know, when certain things came out that we were moving in a certain direction. um, And then, and then with the protests and everything, I could see that, uh, and this was sort of a, another trend that I was analysing was sort of media coverage of things, especially along a, a political axis. It was the first initial protest, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. So then, so then I, I met you guys there, or I saw you guys there, and I was like, hey, these guys, and, and I'd seen a few of your videos as well, and I thought, you know, someone that's speaking out from the other side, giving another perspective, because it's always good to have multiple perspectives um, and, and to, to weigh up the evidence that you see yourself against those perspectives in a way to to work out which perspective is, is more accurate. And, and that's kind of what I'd been interested in. Um, when I saw you guys covering it as well, I thought, hey, you know, like um, 
a lot of my background has been hiding behind the shadows, you know, um, being special forces and things. You you always want to maintain quite a low profile in the public sphere. And so when I saw you were on camera, I was like, hey, I could work with these guys. Um, I can I can help to operate cameras. I can, um, which which had been a hobby of mine. So <laughs> since, <laughs> since another, leaving the military. Tool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so I thought, well, I've, I've got quite a bit of investigative skill. Um, I've got software skill. Um, I've got camera work skill, editing, things like that. Um, and so I thought, well, hey, I could work with these guys and you, you seem to be doing some great work in that, that field of telling the other perspective. And I would say, you know, it's, it's the perspective of the people on the ground and, and that's what I liked about it. Um, yeah, a, a lot of my life, um, and I probably get this from my, my dad, um, I, I do a lot for other people and, and don't do a lot for myself. Um, and yeah, and, and that was something that, you know, I probably get from my dad. He does a lot of work for other people um, at, at the expense of himself in a way. And, and I guess that's what I saw um, what you guys were doing as well. And I was like, hey, you know, this is something I can get behind. Um, so yeah, I've been completely volunteer um, in this role at the moment for the last year. I've, I've been lucky enough to be in a place where I can do that. But um, yeah, so I saw you guys running around with a camera. I thought... I can. Uh, I had a chat to to Jake, and I was like, "Hey, I can, you know, I, I think I can help out with you guys." And and um, so yeah, Jake and I had that chat, and that's where it all started, really, didn't it? I know. It's <laughs> been amazing how quickly it's kind of grown because it was really from January, wasn't it? Because I think we met. I met you when we came back from. I think we'd taken like four or five days away on holiday over like in Monaco over January or something like that. And we came back and we met you after that, and well, I met you with Jake after that. It wasn't long until the February protest happened. Mm. Um, and I remember, you know, we were talking because I, I went up initially by myself because I didn't realise it was going to be this huge, sudden, <laughs> massive event. And then, you know, rung you and rung Jake and you guys came up for different kind of times and Jake ended up not leaving and you kind of came up a couple of times during it. Yep. We'll talk about so many other topics, but just very briefly, if we talk about February, what was that like for you as someone that was ex-intelligence, watching how they were working with media, how the police came in, what what was said in the community, both in the in the military community, but then also in the media community? How was that whole experience for you? Did it sh- change any perspectives you had? Yeah, so I guess with my military background, you know, I... Um my my role in special forces was really information collection and in some way we we worked um, with the actual sort of intelligence um, departments within the military and and we would be the people that would be out on the ground collecting that information and and so um, you know and so I understood intelligence from that perspective um, and then I applied sort of um, a military style intelligence to human trafficking. Um, and so for me, it's, it, it's, you know, I've got that skill where I can look at sort of tactical situations. Um, I've got the scientific skill as well. So I can apply science to what we're doing, which is really the analytical side. Um, and so, so with the protest, I guess for me, there was, you know, I was covering it, um, behind a camera as a journalist, um, but there was also the side of I was observing sort of the police tactics throughout the protest um, and I could see what they were doing. And I guess I, because of my military background, I could kind of see that in a different light. I mean, I've done 
uh, riot training and things like that. And they used to be <laughs> phenomenal in the military because when the when the boys would be out um, doing some riot training, they would need an enemy party sort of thing. And so once the word got around the camp that everyone that there was someone doing some riot training, everyone was out there to to throw sticks and stones and, <laughs> and in some cases roll cars into them and all sorts. It got really wow. wild. So. So in terms of um, riots and things like that, you know, I knew the tactics because I'd trained in that myself. Um, and so I could see what they were doing. Um, I, and, and I could see long-term what was happening. I could see that, um, you know, I think in the in the last sort of week or so, um, you know, the police were coming in every night and they were doing something. Um, and, and that was sort of aggravating. It was, it was wearing them down. And, and when you get tired and you're unsure, you're uncertain, um, and they were sort of using this surprise attack sort of um, tactic where they would come in every night. You know, it, people's um, morale changes within that, and I could definitely see that within the protest, and I think a lot of people could. A lot of people could see, and, and I think a lot of the original people had left. Other people had sort of come in that hadn't been around there, especially as a journalist. You know, like initially, people knew who our team was, um, by, by that sort of last week, you know, we were actually starting to get um, questioned a lot more as to who we were with, you know, from media. Obviously, obviously we were covering it from on the ground. And so initially people liked what the work that we were doing. But once they didn't know who we were, um, you know, they, people did become a wee bit more hostile. And, and if you stood your ground, if you said, no, I'm a journalist and I have a right to be here, um, then they would back down, you know, and, and, and you would carry on doing your work. But uh, it did show that there was quite a few people that had come in sort of later um, that weren't there early on because they would have known who we were. Um, From an intelligence perspective as well, one thing that I found interesting was it seemed like there were a lot of counter-narratives that were being pushed on social media. You know, like I know I was accused of a lot of, like I was accused of Freemasonry and all these types of things mm. by random individuals on social media. And it became harder for me to see where that information was coming from. Was it random people sitting at home on the couch saying these things or was there kind of a concentrated effort to stir up misinformation throughout the protesters to cause a bit of division as well? And I don't think anyone, any of us mm. will ever know what's true and what's false, but it just plays into that whole sense where misinformation can be used by people on either side yeah. to get the desired outcome that they want, which is often to stir division between groups. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so I guess, um, you know, even within my role here at Operation People, one of the one of the things that I've been investigating um, and, and investigating with sort of the Official Information Act, um, so using the law to investigate um, and also using sort of open source intelligence and human intelligence as well to actually um, get in and investigate some of these um, these groups and organisations in New Zealand. Um, and and to be to be fair, from from what I'm seeing is um, you know there there is quite a big effort going on to shape a narrative, shape a perspective within New Zealand, and I definitely think that plays a role in how New Zealand sort of can perceive the rest of New Zealand because when you think about it, we, we operate in a very small part of New Zealand in our everyday lives. You know, you, you sort of operate in the town that you're in and the school that you're in and you don't really know a lot about what's going on in the rest of New Zealand unless there's a communication medium that actually shows you and gives you some insight into that. 
And so if you can sort of control and shape that communication medium that's bringing you information from sort of outside of your sphere of influence, then you can actually shape what the rest of New Zealand looks like. And I think, you know, that's really been politicised in New Zealand. Um, There's been some stuff recently that I find uh, extremely concerning from that perspective. Um, The sort of Avi Yamini story where he was going to come in, we, we were looking forward to interviewing him just because he was a perspective outside of that narrative and and we I guess that's that's a lot of our area isn't it we, mm-hmm. we're looking at perspectives that are outside of that mainstream narrative um, and and we want to give that some time you know we want to communicate that because we want to we want to say well hey let's let's bring a bit of balance to this picture um, and, and so that RV story was was very concerning to me because it was quite obviously politically motivated. I mean, your name got called into that. <laughs> now, I don't know why they're looking at your name in such a way. Like, why are they looking to censor and filter mm-hmm. um, based on your name when all you're doing is, is bringing just another perspective to the picture? And, and I believe Kiwis are smart enough to look at information themselves and decide, you know, who, want, who they want as their, their source of truth. <laughs> it's it's an interesting yeah. one, isn't it? Because they look at what we do, but yet they don't try and have conversations. Like I've, I, I know people that have been raided. You know, we've gone and done talks down mm. with farmers in Invercargill yeah. and they've said that some of them have been raided and police turned up with you know, a whole lot of equipment and it was terrifying for them. But yeah. yet I've never had anyone knock on my door and asked to talk with me. And I think it's quite obvious that I'm not a dangerous threat. I'm not a threat to anybody, but what they're worried about is the lack of control over the narrative. That's actually the threat to them. So I'm not in any way a dangerous or physical threat, but in terms of people having another perspective, that to them is a major concern. And you can see that. And I think traveling showed me that more so, that visiting other countries, they have multiple perspectives. And they debate them more openly. You have politicians that are more vocal, particularly on the centre-to-centre-right side. Um, Over in Europe, there's a lot more politicians sitting in that centre-to-centre-right space. And they are vocal about being opposed to radicalised governments, whereas we don't have that here in New Zealand, not as much. I mean, National didn't stand up for people's right to say no. Act didn't stand up for people's right to say no. Definitely not at the beginning. And even in other issues in terms of our country being renamed, all of that. Now, these would be huge issues in Europe. But here, it's just washed under the rug. Lately, there's been a lot of talk about local terrorists and domestic terrorism. (laughs) You know, the Disinformation Project brought up a a piece where they, you know, Kate was talking about people with blonde hair and knitting mothers and all of this kind of, you know, healthy eating can be a way to pull you into some sort of cult. When you hear them speak like this on national TV, what does it bring into the forefront of your mind from an intelligence perspective or even from a domestic terrorism perspective? Do you think there's any accuracy in that or do you think it's trying to set up a narrative down a certain line? Yeah, I I think it's more narrative and I think what they're doing is they're conflating some of the issues that we have had, you know, the incident in Christchurch, um, which I think everyone would condemn right across the board, you know. Um, You know, that guy was a, a, a lone actor, you know, and... I mean, you say that, but their yeah. argument to that would be, well, there's groups out there, um, I, I don't want to name them because I know yeah. people just yeah. blow up, you know, but there's groups out there yeah. that are saying, well, that was, you know, that was a created movement, a created act by yeah. the, by government entities. And so their argument would be like, well, no, there's groups that believe the opposite to that. 
and you can see the point. It's like, yeah, yeah. there are groups that think yeah. opposite to that, but I think the question comes down to the groups that think that the, it, it might be government involvement, would they actually act on that information in a violent way against the government or is it just words online? Yeah, I, I definitely think they're, they're, you know, people can be pushed beyond sort of a, a reasonable limit. Now, I would say like, don't do it, you know, because you give people fuel. As soon as you, as soon as you become violent and you do things like that, um, you know, you do give them fuel and you and you sort of give their narrative credibility. Um, so, so my advice to anyone that is anywhere on the political spectrum, you know, whether you're the so-called right or the so-called left or whatever, do not use violence. Do not break the law. Um, you know, ev- everything. You know, there's ways to do things that that are within the law, um, and and that would sort of be my advice. Um, you know, get active um, in, in terms of speaking up. You know, use your voice. Um, at the moment, that um, seems to be a huge threat in New Zealand to um, to that narrative. Um, and and when these uh, you know these these so-called researchers and things like that, and I say so-called because. You know, I've been digging into that and I can see that they've definitely got sort of activist um, backgrounds. And so I would term them more as, as activists. Um, when they've been, you know, making these claims and these calls and, and you can see that they're pushing their, what they consider terrorism. They're, they're expanding the um, inclusion criteria, so to speak. And I think it's out of desperation, you know, because they know that more and more Kiwis are actually getting information and they're looking around and they're saying, what are these people on about, you know? And and as more people just question, you know, and, and that would be my call as well, is just just ask questions, um, you know. Um, the more that, that Kiwis actually ask questions and and the more that they get information uh, especially official, like like the mm. official information acts and things like that, as they're coming out, and and I mean that that information is bombproof because it's their words, and the more of that that is coming out, it's kind of exposing what they're doing, and and how the narrative is being set, and and just how sort of radical their position is, and people are not buying it. There's there's so many people that I've met recently that I wouldn't have thought would be sort of uh, more more open to what's going on in, in New Zealand and, and I guess globally mm. as well, um, especially across the West. Does it concern you when like Gaurav Sharma, who is ex-Labour, well, you know, came out saying he got mm. bullied, was kind of pushed out of Labour, yeah. you know, does it concern you when he says that they have been trained on ways to get around OIAs and to hide information? No, it doesn't. It, it, it doesn't concern me at all. Like, I mean, I, I come from that special forces background, right? And and you're aware of these things, you know. And and you you, if you're strategic about it, you you would you would actually avoid them. So you would you know instead of um, writing an email, you'd use your phone or something like that. That way, like that conversation, there is no physical record of it. Um, and, and I would, uh, you know, I, I think that's probably. The, the type of coaching they would have um, would be to organise a meeting in person, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that way there's no there's no email trail that, that can then be um, accessed via OIA. Um, 
is that good for a democracy? No, because everything in, in government is supposed to be transparent. You know, we're supposed to see what they're doing. And that, that's the purpose of the Official Information Act. So we can get in and we can say, well, what, you, you know, we can hold them accountable and we can say, well, what were you guys doing when you were organising this or writing this policy? Um, and, and, and to be in government and then be strategically avoiding that transparency to your own population, I think is, um, you know, it, it, it's, not a, it's not in line with sort of democratic principles. Do you think the media and the government are creating extremists? Because what I see is people, the conversation is shut down. So people take that conversation being shut down as justification for government control on more extreme levels. How do you perceive that situation? Yeah, so so I think they, they are essentially their own echo chamber. You know, you have um, most of our sort of legacy sort of mainstream media is government funded now, you know, you, you're going to you're going to have that's going to affect some sort of influence, um, and then you've got projects like the disinformation project. They may not be government funded right now, um, but they but they have been for a long time. There's been a lot of money that's gone through them through, and when we've got the official information acts that show this through the tertiary education commission, through MBIE, um, and and even more recently. Uh, through direct contracting to the to the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, so there's a lot of money that's being funded to that group, um, and there's there's a lot of sort of ideological motivation in these groups as well, and that that becomes quite clear once you start doing some open source uh, intelligence and you start analysing their own social media profiles, and and for people that have been in that in that sphere themselves, I mean, once I started getting into intelligence analyst work, I deleted all of my social media because I knew that even locking it down with the most stringent controls, I, I could still get information. You know, I could still get sufficient information to build a, a person profile, to build a picture on this person in terms of their <clears throat> needs, values, attitudes and concerns. You know, I could understand this, begin to understand somebody um, even if their profile was completely locked down. Um, in, in some of these major social media platforms. Um, so so for, so for people who are supposed to be in that field, they, they post a lot of stuff, um, <laughs> you know, and they have a lot of interaction on social media um, that really reveals their sort of political ideologies and things. So um, either they're, they're, they're not very good at what they do or they're just not very security conscious um, in, in terms of how they're going about their work. Do you think um, that they're radicalising people, though? In, in a way, they, they are creating the divide. They're stretching the divide. I mean, when you, when you look at the polit, um, politics, it is a spectrum. So you've got sort of, you do have far-right people. You do have, have these, um, you know, there are cases of, of people that are very much, um, you know, what you would typically call the classical far-right, the sort of, you know, people with sort of those Nazi ideology, that type of thing. Um, have they, you they seen do that exist. as much in New Zealand, though? Because I'm really struggling yeah. to find it. I've seen little, like one or two people, but I yeah. haven't seen like a group, like not like a group to make any kind of actual action. Yeah, you yeah, know, I, I think I agree with I agree with that um, to some respect. I think there are some some people out there that are doing that. I I have seen some stuff. Um, I'm not going to focus a lot of my attention there 
because people are already doing that. If you look at the disinformation project, you know, a lot of what they're putting out there is the far right this, the far right that, the far right this. So, so they're getting coverage from the disinformation project, right? But then but they've what changed what it is. Yeah, but what you <laughs> won't see from the disinformation project is the, the circles of dis or misinformation on the far left. There's, there's no mention of, of where it is. Now, um, either it weirdly doesn't exist or um, they don't want to cover it or perhaps they themselves are at that extreme on the far left. And so everything from their perspective looks further right. And then, and then, yeah, like you say, they are expanding the envelope of what they consider far right. I mean, we've got a Ministry of Health document that even includes, um, you know, uh, conservative ideals around family structure. So if you believe in sort of, you know, and, and there's always exceptions to the rule, but if you, if you believe that perhaps for society... You know, having a, a stable family with a mum, dad, that, that sort of stay together is the most beneficial to society. Apparently that's a, a far-right ideal now. So, yeah, How, from the Ministry of Health. From now, the Ministry of Health. I mean, that, yeah. that in itself is crazy to me. Yeah. Because the studies do show that a child that has a mother and a father yeah. is most beneficial for that child to actually grow and develop and even just fight and even financially. So yeah. not even an emotional and mental perspective, but a financial perspective that actually helps the child more mm. than any other type of family structure. Now you can disagree with that based yeah. on your own personal social ideology, yeah. but yeah. And there's, studies there's there. always exceptions to the rule. You know, there's, there's always going to be people that, um, you know, that, that break up. And, and even, even then, like, you know, sometimes perhaps, it might be a healthier environment for a couple to separate, maybe, you know, because maybe if there was violence or something like that yeah, involved, absolutely. then, then mm. you know, perhaps it is a better outcome. But, I mean, what, what you're looking at in the study, studies are generally population-level generalisations, right? And they generally go in, in for the, out of a whole population, this is the best outcome. Um, I, I would love to talk to someone from the multidisciplinary health study down in Dunedin because I think that I've looked into into sort of the outcomes of, of people um, and, and it's one of the most famous studies in the, the world as far as I understand in terms of um, being able to look at look at the, the social determinants um, over over such a long period with the same people and, and such a high number of people retained in the study. So... Um, it, it would be, you know, I'd love to talk to someone about that, about, um, you know, whether the Ministry of Health, of all people, sort of making this claim that conservative ideals around family structure uh, are somewhat, you know, thrown in with the, the far-right boogeyman mm-hmm. as being so such a bad thing when actually it might be the, the better outcomes for our society. So I think, there, there, you know, there really needs to be open discussion around issues like that. I mean, there doesn't seem to be much open discussion when it comes to Mm. any issue that disagrees Mm. with the narrative that we're hearing from the Jacinda Ardern government. I don't even, it's not even labor, it's the Jacinda Ardern government, you know, it can cover a wide spectrum. To to be fair though, I think, you know, you've got, you've got Jacinda Ardern, okay, well, we know that she's got that sort of Mm. background, right? What concerns me the most is public services like the Ministry of Health coming out and making sort of political statements like, what are the Ministry of Health looking into um, censoring? Because this comes from sort of the disinformation assessment and response team uh, material. 
um, from an official information act. And, you know, that, that's my biggest concern. What are public services that are sort of that next level away from that executive central government? Um, what are they doing looking at censoring people politically? You know, what, why are they even... Um, so that was a direct link about censoring people that have those kind of views. Conservative, like, you know, not even conservative. That's just your standard family value. Yeah. You know, if you believe in a, a man yeah. and a woman and kids, that's far-right extremism that should be censored. Is that the kind of rhetoric that's coming down through these OIAs? Yeah, I mean, that's coming... Um, there's a little bit of interpretation in that and we're still digging in to to look for specific examples of what they've censored. Um, we will find them. We, we will get there. Um, but, you know, at this stage, it's a matter of time, but we will find them. When we say um, censored, what does that look like? Well, what platforms, what are they using? How is that? How does that affect an everyday person sitting at home? Yeah, so at, at the moment, we've, we've been researching how the, the sort of censorship machine, I'm going to call it machine because it's a lot bigger. Uh, there's a lot more people involved, a lot more departments involved, but there is a real machine to censor voices. Um, and I guess we've been on the receiving end of that. Now, now we don't... Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a medical laboratory scientist. Um, you know, with, with the COVID vaccine and things... Um, I haven't got it myself. I'm a big fan of the technology, though. Um, I didn't get it because of my my intelligence analyst side, and I could see what was happening politically, and I could see that COVID-19 was being politicised, and I didn't like that. And I thought, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until data comes out. I'll give it a few years. Um, the other thing as well is, is, you know, I could see that it was going to go down the sort of mandate line, and I could see that it was going to go down the enforcement line, and I chose to stand on that side of the line, to stand and say, no, this is not right. So that was my choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the technology in it is good. It's got good promise. Um, and that's my opinion. Okay. That, that's, and, and vaccines in general, I've, I've kind of said uh, what I think are one of the best innovations in, in sort of modern medical technology. They're, they're, fa- they're fantastic, in my opinion. Um, I, I like them. Um, and it's it's sad to see that it was politicised so much, um, because it you know when any when any part of science is politicised, it takes a really big hit. Um, I, I did a sort of introduction to science communication paper, and you know they talked about science communication and how that's come through the years. Um, and I, I think the best thing for science communication is for them to stay out of the politics, um, give their advice you know, let the politicians do their thing, um, but definitely don't take sides in politics um, because it just, you just lose trust in science. And, and I've seen that around vaccinations. So, you know, they talk about, you know, they, they class people that didn't want the vaccine. And a lot of people had the first one. Um, they class them as anti-vaxxers, right? Well, they weren't because they took the first one and they didn't like what happened. Now, I'm not going to make any sort of, judgment on whether what happened was accurate or not that's up to them and their health professionals um but you know one of the trends that i've seen is now i I hear people saying i'm not taking any you know i'm not taking any more vaccines or i'm not getting any of my kids vaccinated that that's you know it's it's really something it's a negative outcome from pushing something so hard and forcing people to do something um especially something that's actually sort of you know, 
an, an intrusion on your own personal space, your own personal personal body. So, yeah, I think it's been. It's it's a hard conversation because yeah. I mean I was I've been labelled throughout the media everywhere as an anti-vaxxer. I've never I've never told anybody not to take anything. I've never spent anything about any previous vaccines. I've had all of mine. So I just what but what they've done is they've changed the narrative, they've changed the actual definition and it includes anyone that's against the mandates. Mm. So it doesn't yep. matter if you are researching vaccines, it doesn't matter if you're creating them, it doesn't matter if you're injecting babies. If you say yep. that the mandates are wrong and everyone deserves a choice, you're now an anti-vaxxer. And yeah. I think that was a really big mistake on behalf of the media because what you've done is you've created inadvertently activists who now go, well, I'm standing together with every single other person regardless of where they sit on the spectrum because you've labelled us all the same mm. even though independently our beliefs are completely separate. And I think that that was a really big mistake on behalf of the media and yeah. how they've tried to label massive groups. And it hasn't really worked in their favour. And I think it's a shame now. You know, I yeah. know a lot of people that now don't want to go to the doctor, don't want to listen yeah. to any science, don't want to, they don't want to hear arguments on now on the pro side because mm. they just feel like they've been labelled and pushed in a direction and they were pushed too far. Yeah. RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Let's shift to talking about the trip that, you know, Jacob and I recently yep. went on. You were back here doing a lot of work um, with the farmers back here. The trip happened spontaneously. We were invited over to this big event, the seminar. Within three weeks, we had to go. So we didn't have time to kind of organise in every single country where we went. Watching here from home, what were some of the things that were happening internationally that you saw while we were over there? Yeah, so, so I've been sort of... Um keeping an eye on the sort of Russia-Ukraine situation. Um, now, I've I've been actually watching that for a lot longer. Mm. Um, I, I, I've actually been uh, writing sort of intelligence software and I was actually collecting information on, on sort of the Russia-Ukraine situation because I could see that it was going to happen. Um, and I, I'd kind of, you know, just within my own circles had predicted that um, under the Biden administration, um, that this was going to be their opportunity, and especially before these midterms, which are, I think, going on right about now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I had predicted that if there was going to be a window of opportunity, it was going to be then. Um, I thought if China were going to grab Taiwan, it would be then mm-hmm. um, before sort of Republicans would potentially get back in. And I guess that's that's to be seen yet, but I think like there's a good chance that they're going to take control of the House and maybe the Senate as well. So, um, you know, that'll, that'll sort of throw a spanner in the works of the Biden administration. Um, so, so yeah, I've been watching that. I've been watching what's happening. Um, I, I understand sort of in, in a limited way. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've um, been watching what's happening with Ukraine um, in the lead up to even what happened in sort of February. Um, and so I understand that background. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess part of that is, um, you know, I, I understand sort of combat a wee bit. Um, I haven't really been in that type of conflict myself. Um, I've deployed overseas on, on operations. Um, I've been overseas training, things like that. Um, but I haven't been in, in that type of conflict. Um, but, but I still train for it. You know, I still understand it. Um, and so, 
Yeah, I, I was quite happy for you guys to be going and I was sort <laughs> yeah. of ad- advising you as well. Um, but it was quite concerning once you went in that there were people within uh, certain echo chambers that were posting messages, yeah. essentially probably, um, I, I mean, that would be misinformation, but you could probably determine that the intent there was was probably to cause harm to you guys. Um, and so that might even be classed as disinformation where it's um, incorrect, false information with the intention to cause harm. Because, you know, as you guys went in, I mean, do you want to explain what happened there? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so I'm, I mean, even I'm unsure of the exact first time that people started saying this online because, I mean, obviously we're busy filming and talking to people. We filmed with humanitarians that were doing mm. aid work on the ground. We filmed with local Ukrainians and asked their perspective. And going in, I mean, we didn't know how long we'd be able to be in there for. Initially, yeah. I thought, I was like, oh, maybe we'll be there for a few weeks, you know, talking to people, going to different places. Um, but then the intel rights we went to go in, they said, actually, you guys should not be going in. It's really bad timing right now. Mm. Like things are heating up a lot. There's a lot of talk about nuclear. And so it was quite intimidating thinking, okay, is it worth us going in? You know, what are we hoping to achieve while we're in there? And prior to going in, I mean, we'd met a lot of Ukrainians on our travels that said that they were going back. And that made me quite curious because that's a conversation that I hadn't seen in the media. Mm. Why are Ukrainians going back into Ukraine? Yeah. You know, what's the draw card? They've been offered Europe on a platter of, you know, pretty much any country around the world's willing to take them in. You know, you'd have your pick of the bunch for your mm-hmm. entire lifetime right now. Why are you going back? So that made me really interested, and that's why I wanted to go in. And some of the people we talked to were from Odessa, which is quite a different town. It's a seaside town. Mm-hmm. It's quite beautiful. Um, and, again, we didn't even know that it was beautiful until we got there, and we are like, wow, this is stunning. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we, we decided to jump on a bus. Anyone can go there, jump on a bus in Moldova and cross the border. It only takes about five hours. But once we were filming in there, I think it got to maybe day three and we started Mm. getting messages from people saying, Hey, are you aware there's a group that are activated, that are activists that are here in New Zealand that are putting messages through. And what they were doing is they were commenting, they were trying to start like a Twitter movement and they were commenting on our Facebook, everything like that saying, Chantal is paid a paid spy. She's pro the Kremlin. She's hired by the Kremlin. They're paid by Russia. You need to go and write to the Ukrainian government Mm. telling them that they are Russian spies. And so they had started this whole movement while we were in the middle of Ukraine filming with the Ukrainian people to try and convince New Zealanders to write in about fellow Kiwis and tell them they were Russian spies. And if anyone's been to Ukraine here, they will know that that is such a it's a really intimidating environment to be in. I mean, there's soldiers everywhere. There's armed guards everywhere. Um, We were very, very careful that we were filming within what we were allowed to film, that we didn't go and show military bases. None of that. Um, We were asked to stop filming second to last day because we were in a really big public market and we got approached and they said not to film. And apparently that morning, martial law had come in and the military had said, you're not allowed to film in public spaces. So Immediately, we put our cameras away. We didn't yep. film there at all. And the only bit of filming I did before we left was a, a live stream, which we were still allowed to do mm. out on a street that didn't show big public spaces and public gatherings. And yeah, the amount of information that came out mm. in New Zealand, you know, I mean, there were mainstream media articles that were saying, oh, we're not sure why she's there. But then they had, you know, cited a whole lot of extreme <laughs> views yeah. alongside yeah. me being in there. So they're yeah. trying to direct the narrative a certain way. Yeah. It, it blew up everywhere and you get out and you're, you know, you've been hearing all these 
bomb alarms going off and it's, you know, you, you are a bit shell shocked yeah. from everything that you've kind of experienced and just the heightened anxiety of it all. Then to come out and know that people are willingly trying to target you. Yeah. And just thinking, what could that have meant for us? Yeah. Well, the danger I see in that, um, you know, is, is essentially they were trying to dox you to Ukrainian government officials. Now, the Ukrainian, you, you know, you're there because they're in a war and you're covering that war and you're, and, and I mean, Operation People, our objective here is is really to cover it from the perspective of people, which is why we sort of chose that name. You know, we really want to be a voice for the people and we want to get everyday um, people's voices and, and say, hey, you can have a, a, a platform, you know, you can have a perspective out there and, and we want to do that in a way that's really professional. So, so you're in there to cover, you know, what's going on in a war zone from the perspective of the people. And you've got, you know, these sort of activists that are essentially doxing you and, and saying that, you know, you're a Russian asset. Well, that is extremely dangerous because in the middle of a war, what are they going to do? You know, like mm. that, that is asking for you to be taken captive um, within Ukraine um, and, and at least interrogated, investigated. Now, I've, ha- I've had sort of interrogation training. Um, I know what it's like to go through that. And I know there's different rules around interrogation. Now, if you're not a, a combat soldier, those rules, you know, some of those rules under the Geneva Conventions and things like that don't apply to you because you're a civilian. Um, and if you're a civilian that's going in as, you know, a so-called Russian asset... Um, you know, which is spreading misinformation or disinformation, um, you know, that, that that could be not a nice time for you guys. Um, and, and sort of looking at some of the history of those, um, of, of Ukraine and some of those conflicts in there and the way that they, they sort of treat anyone that is on that sort of pro-Russian side, not saying you're pro-Russian, <laughs> but that was the narrative being given by these, these activists that you're pro-Russian, which is false. Um, that's extremely dangerous, you know, and, and, and it could it could result in, you know, trauma. It could result in PTSD. It could result in death. Who knows what it could have resulted in. Um, but the fact is that that's extremely dangerous and it was, it was coming from a place of false information. Um, I mean, my call is like, why aren't the police investigating that? Why aren't New Zealand police investigating that? They, they I mean, maybe, maybe it's on you to lay a complaint, but, um, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Department of Internal Affairs safety team, digital safety team. I mean, this is, a, this is, this is serious. This is putting a, a life of a Kiwi potentially at risk um, or the health um, of a Kiwi at risk. And, um, you know, it, it's just, yeah. So something did actually happen... Yeah. To someone, um, we we only we we found out once we were once mm. we were out that something did happen to someone that we care a great deal about yeah. back in Ukraine, um, and we still will not talk about their name or yeah. exactly what the situation was because we yeah. want to you know they've still got things that they're dealing with before we can talk about it. Yeah. But thankfully they're now safely out, which is great. Yeah. So they're no longer you know in in any danger, which is fantastic. Yeah. But even you know when when we are allowed to bring that. Publicly, I think people will be really shocked yeah. at the impact that the disinformation that people spread here in New Zealand yeah. actually created. Yeah. What would the, from an intelligence perspective, what would the process have been like? How many people would have had to know um, 
you know the situation that has happened. In order for that situation to have come to fruition, how many people would have been informed about us being potential spies? Yeah, it, it's difficult for me to say because I, I didn't work within the military. Mm. I didn't work as an intelligence analyst. So so I sort of, I was special forces. So my role was more in collecting the information that I would forward on to them. Um, I did some visual tracking where we would apply some sort of intelligence um, analyst type analysis to the information we'd collected off off a trail after following sort of a patrol of soldiers. Um, and then I might have to, I might have to give my sort of, intelligence assessment of what that patrol was doing, um, who they were and, you know, their tactics and things like that. Um, so it's hard for me to say how many people would have had to have known. Um, but dare I say it, in, in the world that we're in, it's politicised. I don't think it would take much um, if, if there's already this narrative around you being part of this disinformation, white supremacist, far right, whatever they call you. Yeah, everything um, under I, the sun. I don't know what terms <laughs> they've used, but it's just nonsense, you know. And and I think it, part of it um, was really revealed in Jacinda's UN speech uh, where she went up and said, you know, words have become the new weapons of war. Um, now that sort of tells us, you know, she she's instructing everyone that, you know, now words are part of this war. But it also, you know, there's this thing called reading between the lines. And reading between the lines is saying, well, she tells us something. What does that tell us about her thought process? And, you know, that, that really indicates that she sees words as being able to be weaponized and used against people. And I think that's exactly what they're doing. They've been doing it for a long time. Um... And I think now that there's people like us that are standing up and saying, well, you know, no more. Um, we're not going to let these words be weaponized. We're not going to, you know, you can call us anything under the sun. It's just going to be like water off a duck's back. You know, it's, we know what you're doing. We know the strategy. We know now that you see words as, as being something that you can weaponize and use against people. Um, and, and we know people, you know, that, that have been targeted by this. We, we know people that have had the police turn up at their doorstep and say, hey, you know, you're, you're a social media influencer. <laughs> and, you've, you know, and it's yeah. like, what's wrong with that? Yeah. You know, what's wrong with, what's wrong with, with having a media organisation, a media company, that doesn't fit the narrative. Mm. What is wrong with that? Well, there's, the, the, the thing that really fascinates me and that I've been thinking a lot on recently is how out of balance the mm. perspectives are. Because, I mean, a, a prime example was when they did that big piece, you know, that was all dark and dangerous and terrible mm. people like Chantal speaking out. And then they said, we don't need to come to you for your opinion because you talk on social media. And it's like, okay, well, when you talk about censoring people on social mm. media then... If from our IAs, we know that the Ministry of yeah. Health thinks a certain way, yeah. we know that the Ministry of Education does because we've read through the curriculum, you yeah. know that the police are following a certain line. I mean, I can't say the military, but Interpol are following a certain yeah. line. Our mm. media are certainly following a, a specific line. The government is following a line. We don't have a real opposition. Everything is stacked in one direction. Yeah. People with another opinion get this much on social media, yeah. and now you're telling them that they're not allowed to have an opinion either. Yeah, so then yeah. everything, and I mean corporations, everything is stacked towards, I would say, a radical leftist agenda. 
when you've got that level of influence yeah. and people are not allowed mm. to have a voice on the opposing side, that to me, I mean, you, you oppress people and eventually they rise up. And I think we're yeah. starting to see that now. And then the government is turning around and saying, oh, these people are starting to rise up and we're concerned. Yeah. All of this would be all of this would be completely settled and decimated yeah. if they actually just allowed people to have open conversation. Yeah, it would. Yeah, um, but they would lose their position. That's yeah. the problem. Um, they would lose their power because people would say, "Whoa, what are you doing?" You know. Um, you, you see, I, I think one of the things in New Zealand is we like to be in the biggest group. You know, we like to be safe, safety in numbers, and because they've been able to sort of control that narrative for so long, um, it, it appears that everyone thinks a certain way, but I don't think that's the case. And I think more and more, as, as more other, you know, media organisations, more groups, and there's some great people doing some great mm. work out there, the more that they're digging into things, the more that they're, ex- they're sort of exposing um, another side to New Zealand and saying, hey, have you seen this? You know, it's making people question. And the more people question what's going on, the more that narrative starts to crumble. Um, and I think they're getting desperate. I think they're getting desperate. And in their desperation, they're, they're expanding the envelope. And that makes them look even more radical. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to wake more people up. More people are going to start looking at what's going on and being like, what? People that that just think the family's a good thing. Well, that's just about every, you have radicalised extremist. You know, it's, well, it's, it's more than yeah. just Christian church. Is, I think yeah. it's pretty much every Most religion. Of society, yeah. um, a lot of yeah. Asian families are raised that family mm. is really important and the importance yeah. of community. I mean, mo- the vast majority of the population would say that is not a radical concept. No. That's a very normal concept. I would say yeah. it's a radical concept to say that that is an extremist idea. Yeah. Where is, where is yeah. this ideology coming from? Do you think it's pure Marxism or do you think there's something more behind it? It is. There's, there's sort of a movement called neo-Marxism um, and, and that relies on things like critical race theory. Now, we don't know too much about that in New Zealand. There's In the States, there's a lot going on mm. there. And before we sort of... Yeah, there's a lot going on there with that and a lot of it's being exposed and a lot of people do not like it because it's divisive. It, it pits one class of society against another. Um, critical race theory being sort of what you could probably also term cultural Marxism where you've, you've created two classes of people, um, in this case two classes of culture, and you've said one culture is dominant um, and oppresses the other one. Um, and, and, and if you read a lot of the material, it's a lot of, you know, the, the white people in, in New Zealand are deemed as the oppressor and, you know, indigenous cultures are deemed as being oppressed. Um, well, there's more to come out on that. We'll, we'll do quite a bit more work on that. But, um, yeah, there's definitely a, an element of that. Um, the sort of disinformation project, um, a lot of their, their sort of, and Tupunahi Matatini, um, or sorry, I probably said that wrong, Tupunaha Matatini, um, they are also, if you read a lot of their research, um, it, it is also along these sort of lines, the spectrum of, um, you know, the sort of class 
class struggle between these two cultures. Um, but they're encouraging the class struggle. Yes. Yeah. Yep, yep. They're advocating for that. Interestingly, and I do want to bring this up because I think it's a really important part of the puzzle in Ukraine that I don't see many people mm. talking about, particularly back here. The same thing has been done. The rate, well, not really race, racial divide. They've taken that, but the language divide between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. Now, when you're talking with people, I mean, we talked with just the people on the ground. Yeah. I'm not really interested in the politicians' perspective, yeah. so I want to actually hear what the people think. One of the biggest groups we talked with was on the bus on the way in, and mm. we just asked the people on the bus, like, "What what is it the war about? How, why do you think it's happening?" And the group that was sitting all around us, completely random people, yeah. random ages, random races, they all said it's just about the language. Yeah. And they said because Ukraine has had has got you know millions of Russian and Ukrainian speakers in it. Well, millions mm. of Russian speakers in it. Some cities are pretty much only Russian speaking. Others are mainly only Ukrainian speaking. Some have a mix of both. Yeah. But over the years, the media and the government have been pushing this narrative that it's not okay to speak Russian. Yeah. And so it's, you know, they've been trying to eliminate Russian from Ukraine. Yep. However, you know, people that, particularly that were older, that were brought up in the Soviet area, see it as heavily Russian yep. in part Ukraine. And yep. then most Ukrainians might have a grandfather that's Russian, a grandmother that's Ukrainian. It's a real blend. Yeah. And so the people on the ground are saying the war is actually because of the language, yep. because they've been trying to eradicate a language from the people. And then others are really upset about it. So Russia's trying to come, like Russia's saying that they're coming along as a hero, yep. rightly or wrongly. Yep. And, you know, I think many people agree that it's wrongly in, in, in the lives that have been lost. Yep. And I mean, on a personal note, meeting the Ukrainian people and seeing what it's like as a country it's beautiful. It's a very yeah. free country. It's very democratic. You couldn't say the same democratic principles apply in Russia. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's not the same way. You know, people are allowed to speak up politically in yeah. Ukraine. There were protests for free speech and all of these things that happened and the police were guarding and making sure that people weren't getting injured. That wouldn't happen the same way in Russia. Yeah. So, yeah, but, but, but the point being that they are using the same racial tone on the ground and it's being brought through by the government yep. and brought through by the media and no one seems to be pressuring that topic which is easily controlled by the government. Yeah. The government could turn around tomorrow and say, hey, we're actually going to allow the Russian stations, we're going to allow the Russian language, you know, we want people to work yep. united and unfortunately what we're seeing around the world geopolitically is that the same things are happening in America as what's yep. happening here, as what's happening in Ukraine. It's all trying to divide people so that they don't work together and realise who's actually making money off them. That's my personal, very, very simplified yeah. take on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, um, it is a trend right across the Western world at the moment, um, this sort of you know, woke sort of revisionist history. It's the same people pushing it um, in, in, you know, right across the West. Um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, one one thing that I've sort of, by, by doing the work that I'm doing is, you know, I think it pays to be far more open-minded, you know, mm. even with, with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine there, you know, the first thing you see is everyone put up a Ukrainian flag on their, on their social media and it's like a virtue signaling thing. It's like I stand with them, you know. It's like, okay, well, why don't you pick up a gun and go fight with them? You know, it's, 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 um, you know, there's there's virtue signaling component, and that's this whole this this woke um, class again that are pushing this idea that if if you don't stand with this particular issue, then 
you're the complete opposite. And it's like, well, no, you can agree to disagree. You know, you, you it's not the issue though, is it? It's not even the issue. It's it's that if you don't stand with this particular government organisation yeah. or particular yeah. group pushing this issue, yeah. because I could say I completely stand with the Ukrainian people. Yeah. I want them to survive as a people. I love Ukraine, love the Ukrainian yeah. people, love the cities. Does that mean that I stand with Zelensky's government and how yeah. they're manipulating the war? No. No, yeah. That's the difference. And I think people yeah. have taken out any relative objectivity. Yeah. You're not allowed to be objective on an issue. You yeah. have to be completely in or completely out, yeah. and it's wrong. Yeah. I think COVID was very much the same. If yeah. you're not completely pro Jacinda's version of this, yeah. then you're an anti-person. Yeah. Whereas yeah. actually you can be pro lots of it, but just yeah. anti this one component of her. But that's that, yeah. um, you know, going back to the weaponization of words. Absolutely. That's, that's mm. weaponized words. If, if, if you don't take a view that we allow you to take, that we will tolerate, then we will mm. not tolerate that. And the punishment will be, we're going to label you something that socially isolates you from your peers so that you'll feel social pressure mm. to then bow the knee and take up our cause. You know, it's, it's extremely manipulative. Um, and, and that's how they do it. Mm. That's how they weaponize words. That's how they've been doing it for a while. Um, and, and now that people are coming out and saying, whoa, hang on. No, we don't, we don't you know, we see what you're doing. Mm. We see the strategy. Um, some of us think strategically. <laughs> We can see it, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's plain as day now. And I think more and more people are seeing that and more and more people are saying, I don't want to have anything to do with it. You know, I, I, more and more people are saying, that's just, just a, you know, a disgusting way to treat people. People have become parrots <clears throat> and mm. I've seen this internationally. Yep. They parrot phrases, they parrot yep. things that they hear, but when you question them on the parroting, they don't actually know what it means. Yeah. You know, like a prime example, I think, was when we were in London and we did lots of street-based interviews asking people about freedom of speech with Elon Musk's takeover mm. of Twitter and what that means to them. And they go, oh, oh I'm definitely pro-free speech but completely against hate speech. Yeah. And then you go, okay, what, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, what is hate speech? You know, yeah. and to some people they said it was anything about LGBT. And I said, okay, well, what about things where people say they hate Christians? And, yeah. you know, so it, it made it really difficult for them to come to a bottom line on what yeah. is hate, what isn't hate. And a lot yeah. of the narrative at the moment would be hateful towards people on the right or yeah. people that disagree with the government. And so yeah. then when you question them on these kind of lines, they found it really difficult and they all came back to the same idea as, oh, it's, yeah. it's quite subjective. Yeah, and, and part of that <coughs> subjectivity is it goes back to that sort of class struggle between different cultures, different groups, intersectionality they mm. call it. So there's intersections between our cultures and some are more oppressed than others and some are the oppressors. And if you're an oppressor, like your opinion in society you know, you lose all the weighting of that because you're an oppressor, so why should we listen to you? You know, and, and if you're a victim and, and, and you're oppressed, then you, you have a high weighting. You know, maybe we should listen to you and be empathetic mm. and things like that. But um, it, it's not open discussion. It's, it's complete intolerance. They will not tolerate any other position but theirs. And then they'll turn around and say, you're intolerant. Mm. You know, it's, it's complete hypocrisy but it achieves their objectives um, and their objectives is to push their ideas and, and to get the power to push their ideas um, while they shut up the other side. Um, and, and I mean, it, it's been effective until recently and I see more people are waking up to that strategy. They're waking up to how this is happening and more and more people are saying enough, mm -hmm. you know, and enough of this um, political correctness. It's yeah. just censorship and it censors, censors one particular voice out of society, well, 
well, um, heavily weighting the other, weighting the other one, and and even pushing it into the the public sphere. Um, again, going back to sort of that sphere of influence. You know, you you only know so much about what's going on around you. The rest of that information comes via channels like the media, via channels mm-hmm. like social media. Um, and if they cannot control them, then they get worried. One of the best conversations that we had was on a very long train ride through the middle of the night from Amsterdam back to Vienna, where we were getting on a plane to get into Ukraine to Moldova. And we were sitting there and, you know, you're in um, like a cubicle, right, with six seats. And we had um, a guy from Extinction Rebellion, which is a radical movement. Um, mm. And he was, you know, he, he he was such a great guy. You know, he was awesome. We had this amazing conversation with him. Another person that was in our same compartment was a girl who was an LGBT, like head of, head of her school, activist from Canada. Then we had a Ukrainian man. I'm, like, I'm not sure if we had someone else. I think that's everyone that we had with mm. me and Jake. And we sat there and we just had this amazing discussion around capitalism and socialism and LGBT issues and what's happening yep. in the world. And we, we, we delved into all of these great topics and we had such an amazing conversation. And it wasn't that any one of us was trying to change someone's mind. Mm. We were just talking about our perspectives. And by the end of it, I mean, halfway through, me and Jacob said, oh my gosh, we should get out the mics and film this because <laughs> yeah. it was just such a great yeah. organic conversation between people with conflicting views but yeah. could have it in a in a really great way, in a constructive way, you yeah. know, and come to the end being like, wow, you're just a really amazing, great person. And although our views differ yeah. on some things, this was an awesome conversation to have. Yeah. It's the kind of conversation that I want us to have more here at OP, but it is difficult getting people that will even come on mm. for a conversation because they think they're going to be attacked. Yeah. And, and to be honest, fair enough. You know, I see how a lot of the leftist interviews go where they do attack people. Mm. I see the same thing on the right where everyone wants to get their perspective out, but they're not really sitting there just to objectively hear yeah. someone and go, okay, I hear you as a person. Yeah. And I think that's where people on either side have gone wrong. They're so busy trying to get their side out that you're forgetting yeah. to kind of listen and understand each other. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think like in a, in a healthy democracy, you need that free speech. You know, mm. you need that dialogue between the sides so that everyone gets to see the different positions. You know, if you're manipulated or if you're sort of socially uh, disciplined through being called a name so that no one will listen to you because you're, you know, you're mm. this bad boogeyman. And it's like, but but they've expanded that idea of, of what is the boogeyman. Mm. Um you know, that controls uh, what New Zealand can see or what the world can see, um, the ideas. And, and ideas just need to be thrown out there for everyone to challenge, to chew over, to think about, um, and then make up their own mind. And then that's when it goes to the to the vote, you know. And, and But e- even interfering, um, you know, e- even by shaping that narrative, you're interfering with that democratic mm. process. Free speech is hugely important. Because we need the ideas out there. We need ideas to be challenged. Um, and, and then when ideas are challenged, people will make up their mind what ideas they like and what ideas they don't. Mm-hmm. But at, at the fundamental level to a democracy is free speech. 
there are some good people working on that. There's some <laughs> there great, are, great, some people great people and so. great groups working yeah. on that around the world. And we're seeing the real shift towards people that are more pro-free speech, even happening in America. I think the elections will show that as well. Mm. It's not even that people are shifting towards the right. It's that the right is holding firm on some core values that most a lot of people are agreeing with, yeah. such as free speech, freedom of expression, body autonomy. Um, and I mean, people, people think of body autonomy yeah. differently, but when it comes to, you know, specific things put on people by the government, that's one mm. thing that they're shifting more towards. Operation People and why we've created it and where we're planning on going, where would you like to see Operation People go? Well, we, we you know, I, I would like to see us grow and develop. I'd like to see us have really good conversations out there to cover issues that aren't necessarily being covered anywhere else. We want to give people um, the time of day. And, and, and for me, like, you know, I love people. I'm, I'm not really a people person, but I love people. Um, you, you know, I'm, I'm probably slightly more introvert, introverted. So big crowds and things. Um, I'm a little bit more, more cautious. I, I've, I've definitely trained myself out of that over the years. Um, but, you know, once I get to know people and I can meet someone and we can have a fantastic conversation, I'll learn from them, they'll learn from me, we'll challenge our ideas and things like that. I really enjoy that. And, you know, I, I see if we can do that at Operation People, I, I love long form content. I know um, people don't have the time to consume it and not everyone's into that. But if we can sort of, I'd, I'd love to see us touch all those areas. I'd love to see us go, let's do long form content. Let's take some short stuff. Let's cover events that aren't necessarily given the time of day that they they should be um you know let, let's publish books let's um let's do great productions um that's that's one thing that that um i i see we have sort of sort of a niche niche position in that in new zealand that we are actually focusing on um producing very sort of high production value content um so our documentaries are, are, are getting better and better mm. um and you know we're, we're building towards that um yeah but but I'd, I'd like to see us expand and I'd, I'd like to see us be able to bring people back together to have conversations again um to be able to agree to disagree mm. on things um and then it's all just sorted out when you go to vote yeah yeah I like that before we wrap up, I and mean, people are going to want to know so much more about you, particularly mm. in the, you know, your your background and your history and working with the anti-child sex trafficking. That's a massive topic here in New Zealand and one that people are really passionate about. Yeah. I'd love to go into that more, but I'm aware also that, you know, we'll try and keep this one yeah. short and then do more. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot. Phil has some of the best stories, guys. His stories are unbelievable. So you'll be hearing a lot from him yeah. in the future. So don't worry. There's going to be some great stuff coming out. And, you know, we're so thankful that we meet you and that we're managing to build something that I think is really special and yeah. inherently Kiwi where we sit down, we have good conversations and we just genuinely care about people. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, and I, I think, you know, I guess a final point, it's not all doom and gloom, you know, yeah. like it, it's, I, I think we've got a really good positive future where um, people from all different walks of life are, are coming together. I mean, the protest, um, to take it back there quickly, I sort of covered the you know, the tactical side a wee bit. But, you know, that place, there were so many different people from so many different walks of life. And even politically, about the one thing that everyone agreed on was, don't you force me to do something. 
mm. that I don't want to do, especially with, with my body sort of thing. Um, and that was about the only unifying thing there. There was people with all different, from oh, all yeah. different walks of life, um, different cultures, different backgrounds, different professions, um, you know, and, and that was, it was really a good cop cross-representation of New Zealand. About the only people you didn't have there were the political class, but even a couple did come down, you know, and, and which was great to see. So, so really it was, it was a cross-representation of New Zealand, except for the political class. But, but getting back to that, it, it's, you know, a, a lot of people are saying enough's enough um, and, and it's, it's definitely the tr- trend in that direction. And I think, um, you know, we are going to see them get more desperate to control speech in New Zealand. They're going to get more, um, you know, they're going to try and exclude that, uh, what they see as a dangerous threat or a, a terrorist threat. I mean, the definition of a, of a terrorist is, is um, or terrorism is using violence to uh, achieve a political outcome. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it. It's, it's using violence. So if people are not being violent, then they are not terrorists. Um, and so to weaponize even that word, you know, and that term is extremely dangerous. Um, mm. And, it, and it, it undermines, you know, the very, um, <clears throat> the very protection against people who are terrorists and who are prepared to use violence. So, mm. I mean, um, people, people have been upset at me before if I've taken, uh, you know, if I've blocked them from the page yeah. because they're saying, you know, quite abusive things or trying to link to other things. I mean, I've had people call my, de- my you know, say my lovely, yeah. it's a pedophile, these horrible things people say. Then yeah. they say, oh, you're not allowed to take anyone off the page if you care yeah. about free speech. And I'm going, well, hold up. I'm saying that I'm not going to listen yeah. to you abusing me. However, I'm not censoring your account. Is that I'm not trying to block yeah. your account forever. I'm not trying to report you. I'm not trying to get you deplatformed. You're allowed yeah. to have your platform where you can go and say whatever you like about me and yeah. keep that. But I'm just not allowing it in my space. <laughs> what do you think about that? Do you think that's fair or do you think you kind of have to allow all the abuse, no matter what it is, to the fullest extent? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's like at the end of the day, it's your page. It's not pub, it's not, um, you know, government managed. Um, so there's, you know, you can do whatever you want with that. Um, and and I, I, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. But if people are just being annoying and no one wants them there, um, you know, I, I guess that's a different story. I would like to see those people actually engage with constructive dialogue, mm-hmm. even if they disagree. That's okay. I mean, it's I invite okay. them on the I invite yeah. them on the podcast. I always yeah. say to them, I'm like, "Will yeah. you jump on with me live?" And they always yeah. say, "No, no." Yeah, <laughs> but I invite them on because I think yeah. you need to invite them first before you do that. You yeah. know, and I've left an open invitation. If there's anyone yeah. that I've ever stopped, you know, and yeah. it hasn't been very many. I think there's maybe only a couple of hundred over the whole time I've had yeah. the pages. Not very many at all, but. Yeah often it will start out with they'll they'll do a whole series of comments yep. and then if you allow them to if you don't if you don't stop them soon then yeah. they'll get more and more abusive and yep. so often over the space of a couple of days you'll go oh, okay there you are yeah, yeah. so it, it's, it's interesting watching it happen and I'm sure it happens to yep. people that are on you know that are on the other side to me as well it'll yep. happen across the board it's yeah. almost oh, yeah. human nature in play yeah. you know um it's just a misuse, you know, mm. and, and no one likes that misuse of the platform. Um, you know, would it be nice to have them come back? Yes. But, but come on, you've got to, you know, be, be cordial. You've got to have good constructive dialogue and just being that person, a troll that just, and I think on both sides, I agree on mm. both sides of the political spectrum, wherever you are, be nice, be polite. 
don't call people names, you know. Just have a go at the ideas, you know, but be nice about it. Mm. Don't have a go at the person. Be have a go at the ideas. Before yeah. we wrap up, final yeah. thing, and we, I know we talked about um, positivity, mm. and I, yeah. I agree, it's, you yeah. know, it's all doom and gloom these days. How can we bring yeah. back some happiness, <laughs> some joy? What yeah. would be your greatest piece of life advice or inspiration for people watching? Um, I, I think, you know, it is, it is challenging to, to stand up and be bold. Um, even for me, you know, I've, I've come from this background where I've tried to remain hidden, tried to remain out of the, the public <laughs> sphere for as long as I can. You know, part of being special forces was doing that. My role sort of doing um, anti-human trafficking was I didn't want to be a public profile. Um, so for me, it's, it's very hard to come out and say, okay, here I am publicly and I'm going to talk about these things. Um, but, you know, there's so many people out there that are thinking like you are, um, and, you know, you have a lot of support from a lot of people. Stand up, you know, be brave. Um, and I guess is it Project Veritas, they say, this, and, and do something. You <laughs> do know, something, it's, yeah. It's, it's quite cool. Do something, say something, mm. you know, and, and talk to people. Talk, talk to people around you because there's so many more people that are, that are going, this stuff is, is crazy. Um, and, you know, and, and that I think is, is the good thing. That's, that's the thing where we're heading to. There's going to be so many more people that are, I guess, a little bit more awake politically. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not going to just go, politics isn't my thing. They're going to say, actually, mm. politics is really important. Um, and, yeah. So that, that's my bit of advice. Stand up, be strong, say something. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. All right. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for your amazing service to New Zealand and now your next set of service yeah, here right. in Operation yeah. People. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Looking forward to everything that we're going to achieve in the next couple of years. Awesome. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, thanks to all our, our viewers and things as well. And um, mm. keep following us along. We appreciate the support that you guys give us as well. Um, so, yeah, thanks. RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. That's it for the Chantal Baker Show here on Reality Check Radio. I hope you guys really enjoyed listening to what Phil had to say and understanding more about our team here at Operation People. Um, Operation People is our media company. You can find us on operationpeople.com. And we're starting to release more investigative pieces. So we're releasing a new show. We're trying to do it weekly. We're seeing if it's going to become um, if, if hopefully weekly. Hopefully we can get a couple of episodes per week if we start to grow it. So that's going to be breaking down different government documents and showing you guys what is happening behind the scenes in the New Zealand government. So to watch the videos, you can head to operationpeople.com and I will be putting up different audio from those different investigative pieces here on Reality Check Radio. Thank you guys so much and I hope you have an amazing weekend. This has been the Chantel Baker Show. You're listening to Reality Check Radio. RCR with Chantel Baker, Reality Check Radio.